We continue our series, God at the Movies, and today we're going to be looking at the movie Bridge to Terabithia, and it's an older movie. I think it came out about 2007, and it's got uh, two people that are older now, obviously, uh, Sophia and Rob and Josh Hutcherson, and so all the young people earlier were like, oh, you know, they're, they're beautiful people, and so one of the things that we actually have in common in our family with Sophia and Rob is that uh, when we lived in Denver, our kids went to the same orthodontist, and so we're all broke together. And so that was, that's cool. And, um, but Bridge to Terabithia, it's a story about two young people who are unique individuals and they're struggling with coming to their own identity, understanding their own self-worth and their value and understanding their uniqueness. And so because of that, struggle with that, then they're also being bullied. And one of the places they're bullied, which all of us have loved riding the school bus. And so they were on a school bus and they're being bullied. And uh, they end up finding each other. Actually, Sophia and Rob's character, Leslie, just moved to town. And she's trying to find her way as well. And so Jess and Leslie are riding the bus together and they're seeing that they're being bullied. And they get to school and begin to talk. And the thing that kind of draws Leslie and Jess together is Jess's art. He's a really good artist. And so she, Leslie sees that and says, hey, you're a great artist. And so that begins a friendship. And as they come back later on after school, they just then shows Leslie his favorite spot, which is a, behind their houses. There's a spot in the woods. It's got, a, it's got an old tree house. And they do this little rope swing, and they swing across the creek, and they go in the woods, and they create their own little fantasy world to get away from the realities of life. And I imagine kids do that, but also as adults, wouldn't it be nice to swing a rope and get away from the worries of life? And uh, so Jess and Leslie do that. They go and they create this world called Terabithia. And they make up characters and they slay animals and monsters and all this different stuff. And that's all about them overcoming their insecurities about who they are and slaying the giants in their own life and the struggles that they have and this coming to grips with the fact that they're unique individuals. And one of the things that I want us to grasp from this is that we are all unique people. And I know that as young people are growing up, it's a struggle. We live in a world where we're bombarded with social media messages and all this different stuff where we should all kind of look like each other. But in reality, when God created us, he created us to be unique. He created us as one-of-a-kind beings for a unique purpose, a unique time, and a unique space with unique gifts and unique opportunities to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that when Christ made us, through Christ, when we were made, in the garden we were created, but then also in that moment when we said yes to Jesus, we're created anew in Christ. And so the uniqueness of us is then also melted down, and through the power of God we're raised back up, and we now can find our uniqueness and our purpose and our value in life even more so because of our relationships through Jesus Christ. So where the world tells us we should look like each other and act like each other and think like each other, what God tells us is actually I've created you unique for a purpose and I have a plan for you and I don't make junk. I do not make mistakes. Quit allowing others to tell you that you're a mistake and that you should fit in with the crowd. As a matter of fact, pursue your uniqueness because God has ordained that in you and he wants to use that in you. And I know that's a hard lesson, but even as adults, we maybe sometimes get to that place where we understand it. We get comfortable in our own skin. Well, that's the story of Jess and Leslie. They're trying to find out how they can become comfortable in their own skin, how they can find their place in the world and find themselves having worth and value and purpose. And in that moment when we say yes to Jesus as followers of Christ, we then truly find our purpose and our meaning in life, the fulfillment of where it's not about me, but it's a greater purpose. And that purpose is 
pointing people to Jesus. I even believe that our friendships can go even deeper and that we have friendships on a deeper level because of the fact that we have relationships with Christ. In just a moment, we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 16 all the way through 2 Samuel. If you have your Bibles, you can turn along, follow along. If not, the verses that are appropriate will be up on the screen. But then when we come to know Christ, that our friendships can go to a whole different level because in that moment when we say yes to Jesus, we acknowledge the fact that we are messy human beings and that we are never going to achieve perfection. We're never going to be perfectly clean. We're never going to be perfect of anything. And we acknowledge it before our Creator and say, God, here's who I am. Here's my mess. In my nakedness, you see all of my faults and flaws and you still receive me and accept me and say I'm something of value and of worth and of uniqueness. And so that in that, as we've understood what grace is, as we've understood what true love is, therefore then we can begin to offer it to other people. That until we've experienced the love and grace and mercy of Jesus Christ in our life, we can't truly offer it to someone else. And so that as we grow in our faith, one of the things that we're learning is, is that God loves us, and many times in spite of our messiness, that he's working through the messiness with us. Therefore, then we can offer grace and mercy and love to other people because we see worth and value and not what we can get from them, but who they are in Christ. And that instead of mocking and judging their uniqueness, we see their uniqueness of how God has created them as an opportunity for their have some call. They have a call and and their uniqueness allows them to be in relationship with other people that we could never be in relationship with because of who they are and the uniqueness of their gifts. And that God has called each one of us to unique places in our life and unique ways to even see things and view things. But in Christ, that's been redeemed. And now we can actually bond together and we can be from completely different worlds and bond together because of our relationship with Christ. One of the things that I've enjoyed in my life, that I've had the great fortune of traveling all over the world, and every time that I sit down with someone, we may not even share the same language, but there is something about a bond that we share because we are in Jesus Christ. And the relationship starts there, that there's this place of trust, there's this place of we understand that our vision and our hope and our purpose is found in Christ. And so therefore, even that begins the relationship with the understanding of I'm not there to tear him down or he's not there to tear me down. We're on a mission together. We have a purpose of pointing people to Jesus. And so as we look at the story of Terabithia, the stories of Jess and of Leslie and these two young people trying to find out and discover their uniqueness and how God has fleshed them out. And so they're in this little make-believe world called Terabithia. And toward the end of the story, Jess has been invited by one of his art teachers to go into town and to visit the museum and kind of help him experience his uniqueness and kind of challenge him to grow in that. And so he doesn't tell his mom, he doesn't tell anyone he's going to do it, he just kind of goes off and does it. And the teacher assumes that everyone knows. And uh, in the meantime, Leslie uh, didn't know his friend. Didn't know where he went, so she went off to the to Terabithia and kind of by herself and was going to spend some time alone in their little make-believe world. And as she swung across the rope, an accident happened. And because of that accident, everybody began to look for Jess and was frantically looking for him until he came back later on in the day. I won't share it, won't ruin the story for you, but um, something tragic happens. And so in the midst of that, Jess realizes how short time is and that he treasures those moments that he had with Leslie. So challenge you haven't seen the movie, you want to watch it, but friendships are important. One of the things that we all crave and need in our life are true friendships. 
One of the things that most of us struggle with for our entirety of our lives is finding people that we can truly do life with, that love us, that can look at us and they know our name, they know our flaws, they even know the places in our life, the closets that we hide junk and they know some of the junk in there, if not all of the junk, and they still love us. That they still know our name and we can walk into the room and they still put their arms around us and say, I love you, I care about you, even though we may know all that stuff about you. And that is because we've experienced that in Jesus Christ. And that we crave from that. That even that moment in the garden when God breathed his breath into man, that we had this soul and from that moment we've craved for relationship. And the number one relationship that we crave, our soul craves for, is one with God the Father, with our Creator. And that in that, then we also crave for people to know us and to love us. And that that is the place that church should be. That we walk into a church, we walk into a house of a life group and someone says, Hey, Chris, and that you know that that person knows you. When they call out, hey, Chris, it's not just because y'all been hanging out somewhere and they know that you can do this and that, but because they know you and they love you and they know your mess and they've walked with you in it. And today I want to look at a story of two people that had messy lives. You would think they would have it all together, but they didn't. And those two people are Jonathan and David. Now, Jonathan was the son of King Saul. He was the prince. He was about to be the king at some point whenever Saul passed away. And Saul's job was to be the best king. He was the first king of Israel. And so his desire was to to be a king and to have a lineage and pass it on to Jonathan and then his grandson and have this just great line of kingship. But along the way, Saul messes up. He continually tries to do things in his own strength and his own power and his own wisdom instead of referring to God for his wisdom and his power. And so God removes the anointing that Saul had on his life as king. And at the end of his life, the kingship was going to pass on to a new line. So God had spoken to Samuel, a prophet of his, and he said to Samuel, hey, I need you to go appoint the new king, anoint the new king. I want you to go to the house of David, house of Jesse. And so he would go to the house. He went to the house of Jesse And he spent time and he said, hey, Jesse, pull out all your sons. I want to uh, talk to all your sons because God has from this house, God wants me to anoint the next king. And so Jesse calls out all of his sons. They're out doing mechanic work. They're out in the fields, whatever they're doing. They all come in and he says, nope, not that one. 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 Jesse had a lot of kids. Not that one. Not that one. Do you have any other kids? And he says, yes, I have one more. David, but he's just a little boy out in the shepherd fields. He's just, he's just a shepherd. And Samuel says, call him in. And David shows up, and Samuel, in his heart, God spoke and said, this is the one. Here's a young man who's after God's own heart. And so Samuel anoints David as the next king. And in the midst of all of that, Saul, in losing his anointed, his heart and his soul became disruptive. And they were, um, they were, he was struggling, and there was, it was just not right And because he'd lost his anointing, he could sense something wasn't right with his relationship with God. And so he needed something to soothe his soul. And so David, because he was a shepherd boy, had learned how to play the get fiddle and harp and all this different stuff. And so he called in and said, hey, who's one of the best musicians around? And they said, this guy, this shepherd boy named David. And David was invited into Saul's court and began to play the get fiddle. And he was so good at it. David, David was so good at playing the fiddle and the harp that Saul began to rest that the music that David was playing allowed Saul's soul to rest. And so he was able to be in his court. Well, in the midst of all that, one day, 
Saul and his men and his officers went out. They were challenged by the Philistines. And the Philistines were the main enemy of the nation of Israel. And the reason that was so is because Israel hadn't done away with them whenever they first took over the land like they were told to. And so they were constant enemy, constantly fighting with them. And so Saul and his men were out. And the Philistines were great warriors, and they had one warrior that was greater than all the other warriors. And if you've been around church at all, you've heard his name. His name is Goliath. Now, Goliath is this really big dude. I mean, he would be a great left tackle. I mean, we would love him. He would be a number one draft pick. This guy was huge and a monstrous and a great athlete. And so every day he would come out, and he would look at the nation of Israel, and Saul and all of his officers, the greatest warriors of Israel, he would look at them and say, my name is Goliath. And I am here to destroy you and to mock your God, Yahweh. The nation of Israel, it says, all of the men were girded up. They were ready for battle. They would hear Goliath make that claim, and they would run like scared chickens back to their tents and say, well, let's think about this tomorrow. Let's set our alarms for 7. We'll show up, get dressed, and at 8, maybe things will be different tomorrow. Maybe we'll have enough courage. Well, they do this for several days. Well, in the midst of all of that, David's been shepherding, and he comes home from his little shepherding job, and his dad, Jesse, says, hey, David, your brothers are getting hungry. Would you deliver some pizzas? David's like, I got it. He works for Domino's on the side. Shepherding didn't pay enough. And so he delivered pizzas to his brothers, and as he's delivering pizzas, he rolls up about the time that this Goliath guy stands out and says, Hey, I'm Goliath. I'm the baddest of all bad warriors here in the Philistines. Our gods are bigger than your gods, and I spit on your God, Yahweh. Well, David gets a little miffed, and he says, You guys are supposed to be warriors. What are you doing? I'm just a shepherd boy. Why aren't you guys out there fighting for the name of Yahweh? Why are you chickens and cowards? And he goes to Saul, and people had heard about him, and they sent him to Saul, and he tells Saul, I don't know what you guys are doing. We need to go over there and kick some hiney. That's in the Bible. It's a biblical term. Get over there and kick some hiding. We're going to kick some hiding. Why are we just sitting here? And Saul says, oh, everyone's too afraid. Have you seen this guy? He's like, he's mocking the name of our God. We have got to defend him. And so Saul says, well, here you go. And so he offers David his his uh, warrior clothes, his girt, girt up. And so David puts it all on, and he looks kind of foolish because Saul's this really big guy. He was a king. Whenever they anointed him as king, the reason they chose him as king was because of the way that he looked, not because of his character. And so he looked like a king, and David didn't look like a king yet. And so he was still a little boy. And so he put all that stuff, and he said, hey, I'm not going to be able to fight with your gear. I need to fight with the gear that I know how to fight with. And so David took the little slingshot he was good at, and he had already killed other animals. And One of the things that we need to know is that, again, in our uniqueness, we need to quit thinking about we need other people's gifts and tools when we have our own to fight battles. God has gifted us with what we need to fight the battles he's going to give us. And so David takes his little slingshot, and he goes out, and Goliath does his little thing. I'm Goliath. I'm the top warrior of the Philistines. I spit on your God. And David says, come on, bring it. And Goliath is like, <laughs> you're like a seventh grade junior high football player. You don't know nothing about me. Goliath's like, I'll take you out. And so he just takes that thing and flap right in the middle of the forehead and breaks his cranium and down he goes. And the Israelites all of a sudden have courage and they run and they take Goliath and they take all the Philistines. And a song is beginning to chant it as they raise David up on his shoulders. And they're like, yes. David is awesome. David is awesome. And what do they say? They say, David, David slayed his thousands and Saul slayed his maybe hundreds. Well, Saul was mad because Saul wasn't getting the credit. 
David was the one getting the credit. So David was, was, was getting this credit and he was excited uh, about it and all that. But Saul was angry about it. And so in, in 1 Samuel chapter 18, we see this. And it says, after David had finished talking with Saul, he met Jonathan, the king's son. And so here they are. This all had happened. People were chanting and all that. And David has met with Saul. And he congratulates him. And David's there talking with him. And David's uh, Saul's son, Jonathan, joins in. He says, there's an immediate bond between them. For Jonathan loved David. Now, interestingly enough, this word loved means souls knit together. Okay? So that these two guys, basically, in that moment, there was something about them and their relationship and and who they are and what they're about, that their souls in that moment were knit together. And this word is only used one other time, and it is used whenever Joseph is his love described for his brother, Ben. So that Joseph saw his brother Ben whenever they were in the famine and they came to get food from him. And he was the new leader of Egypt passing out food. Joseph saw his brother Ben and their souls were knit together. There was this bond. Even though he had other brothers, there was a bond and a relationship between them that was stronger than others. And so the same word is used here. Whenever Jonathan loved David, there was a soul knit together. They were blood brothers and they were drawn together by their common enemy. Now, the one thing that's interesting is that Jonathan should have been the one, he should have been uh, angry at David and the fame that he was getting because as more fame that David got, the more likely he could become king. Now, Jonathan was the heir to the throne. He should be one to be pushing David down and pushing David away from any fame, from any glory, any recognition. That's what Saul was going to be doing. And so David saw Jonathan saw David and said, this is a man who I can do life with and we can befriend one another and their souls became knit together. That all of us long for a friend like that can see us in our, in our messiness, can see who we are and they still love us. Now from that day on, Saul kept David with him and wouldn't let him return home. Now see, Saul, the opposite of, of uh, Jonathan, Saul wanted to keep him around because you keep your enemies close. Saul began to see David as an enemy, not as a friend. Jonathan saw him as a friend, and we see throughout their story together how they treated one another and how they worked together or against one another. And Jonathan made a solemn pact with David because he loved him as he loved himself. Again, Jonathan should have been threatened by David because he should have been his enemy. For us, one of the principles for us to learn is that as we begin to have friendships with other people, we do things for them. We lay down our life for them, that we're not worried about a position, we're not worried about priority, we're not worried about fame, we're not worried about our name, but we're worried about the name of our friends, and we will be sacrificial in our care for them. This also impacts our marriage, this impacts our friendship, this impacts how we care for other people at work. When we begin to see ourselves as loving other people and for them, not from them, our lives and our friendships begin to change. So Jonathan sealed that pact by taking off his robe and giving it to David together with his tunic, his sword, his bow, and his belt. In other words, everything outwardly that identified Jonathan as in his role and his position in the family and in the kingdom and as the next prince, he handed over to David. The very position, everything about that in that moment, Saul saw this and he's like, what is my son doing? He's handing over the throne to David in this moment. Their souls were knit together and Jonathan understood the anointing that David had. And he, in that moment, because of the pact, because of the friendship, he gives over everything 
to David. Because it wasn't about the being the next king. It was about he had a friendship. And he was going to do whatever he could do to see his friend succeed. But David, David and Jonathan weren't enemies. They had a common enemy, and that was the enemy of the Philistines. Saul had an enemy in David. And in, over time, actually began to have an enemy in his own son, Jonathan. So from this point forward, David is in the inner circle of Saul, and he's always around him. Matter of fact, because he was such a great warrior, Saul raised him up. And every time that they would go out to do battle, there would be Saul's officers, including David. And the scripture over and over and over again would say this. Every time the commanders of the Philistines attacked, they were constantly being attacked. David was more successful against them than all of rest of Saul's officers. So again, you can see, I'm sure Saul's just anger and his frustration just began to continue to rise. So David's name became famous. Again, that song, they just kept writing songs about David killed thousands and Saul maybe killed hundreds. And so Saul is trying to propagate his name, but David's name keeps getting raised up. Saul now urged his servants and his son Jonathan to assassinate David. But Jonathan, because of a strong affection for David, told him what his father, told David what his father was planning. Tomorrow morning he warned him, you must find a hiding place out in the fields. Saul was consistently from this moment forward doing whatever he could possibly do to do away with David. And Jonathan tells him, he goes, I'll go ask my father. I'll ask my father to go out there with me and I'll talk to him about you. And then I'll tell him everything I can find out. So the story goes that there are several moments along the way where Saul has opportunities and David have opportunities to kill one another. And they, David is, is uh, protected by others and he gets away. David on multiple occasions has an opportunity to kill Saul and he chooses not to. Because his idea was that he should not assume the throne. He should not take something that's not rightfully his yet. As a matter of fact, one of the opportunities that David had, Saul had needed some private time. He stepped back into a cave for his personal private time by himself. And David sneaks up and actually takes a corner of his coat. And whenever Saul gets far enough away down the hill, David steps outside of the cave and he holds up the cloak and says, You are still my king. Even though I had the opportunity to take your life, I honor my God, Yahweh, and I honor you in the position that he's given you. Your time is not done yet. And David and Saul together were continuing this this disagreement. And Saul was consistently pursuing David. And David was consistently getting away from him. And David always, whenever he had the opportunity to take Saul's life, he spared him. David escaped several times. And Saul escaped because of David allowing him to do so. In 1 Samuel chapter 20, we see David now fled to Naoth to Ramah and found Jonathan. Because he's tired of getting chased. And so he comes to Jonathan and he says, what is my crime? How have, I offended, how have I offended your father that he is so determined to kill me? Jonathan says, this is not true. David says, hey, he wants to kill me. And Jonathan says, this is not true. You're not going to die. He always tells me everything he's going to do, even the little things, which should be true. The prince should be learning everything about the business of the king. And so the king is whispering. He's telling him he's actually behind the scenes, even giving him more information than he gives others. But in this one thing, Saul knew that Jonathan's friendship with David could possibly trip him up. I know my father wouldn't hide anything from me. This just isn't so. Then David and Jonathan took an oath and he said, Jonathan tells him, your father knows. Perfectly well about our friendship. So he has said to himself, I won't tell Jonathan why should I hurt him. But I swear to you that I'm the only to step away from death. I swear it by the Lord in your own soul. And so the two come together with this oath. And then Jonathan asked him, 
Tell me what I can do to help you. That's what our friends should be asking us. Tell me what I can do to help you. And our lives boast crisis-centered moments. And we cry out to our friends, it's 2 a.m., it's 4 a.m., and we're in these difficult situations. And the messiness of our mess is there. It's actually spilled out. We vomited it before everyone because it's just there, and they walk up on it. And our friends should say, tell me what I can do to help you. And too many times our friends judge us, our friends try to clean it up. And our space as friends is not to clean it up, it's not to judge, it's to get in there with them and to say, what can I do to help you? Jonathan goes and has dinner with his dad. And in the midst of asking his father about David, David, uh, Saul gets very angry and throws a spear at him. And I don't know about you, but if somebody throws a spear at me at dinner, that means the invitation's over. It's off. And so that happened today uh, to Saul and to Jonathan. And Jonathan gets up. And so David and Jonathan had come up with the idea of how they, Jonathan could communicate with David. And they were going to shoot some arrows and give direction. And so when they shot the arrows, he told his young boy certain things to do. And because of that, David knew that he was no longer safe to be in the kingdom of Saul and that he had to go away. And so David then comes where he comes out of his hiding spot and he goes before Jonathan and he bow down. He bows down three times before him. And in that moment of bowing down three times before him again, he's acknowledging the fact that David is not king, but that Jonathan still has authority over him and that David is still a servant of Jonathan and a servant of Saul. Again, even though he's constantly being pursued, even though he's already been anointed as the future king, he did not rush God's plan and God's purposes for his life. He continued to fight the good fight and to grow. And in perfect timing, God would allow his priority, his reign, to happen. So in that moment, Jonathan and David held each other. They had a goodbye, knowing that this was probably the last time that they would ever see each other. Whenever they separated, Jonathan went to town to be with his father, and David went away to continue to fight. They swore together to live in peace with each other, and they went their separate ways. Then Jonathan went to town, and David left. David went about leading his men in various battles. David continued to fight for Saul and, and, and kind of fight battles for him. And Saul continued to do his things as well. They were kind of going around. And so here we are at the end of Saul's life. Saul is fighting the Philistines. David's fighting the Amalekites at the same time. There are different battlegrounds. And the Philistines close in on Saul and his sons, Jonathan, Abdibadab, and Makishua. Great names. You should name your kids that. These guys were, all three of them were killed in battle, and so Saul's the only one left. And the fighting grew fierce around Saul, and the Philistine archers caught up with him, and they wounded him severely. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. So at that moment then of Saul's death, you would think all of a sudden everybody would be like, ah, David is now king. Well, it took a few years. The king united around David, and after a few years, everything began to settle down. David's now king. He's in his palace. He's enjoying what it means to be a king. And because of his friendship with Jonathan, he hadn't forgot about the call and the pact and the vow that they'd made together. David reaches out and he says to his advisors, is there anyone still in Saul's family that's alive? Anyone whom I can show kindness to for Jonathan's sake, the friendship, the kindness, the connection of the soul. And his his people said, yes, he has a son. His name is Mephibosheth. He was Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson. When he came to David, when Mephibosheth came to David, he bowed down low to the ground in deep respect. And David said to him, greetings, Mephibosheth. Do not be afraid. 
I intend to show you kindness because of my promise to your father, Jonathan. I will give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will eat here at my king's table. Remember, Jonathan gave David his cloak and everything that identified him as the prince, and he handed it over to David. Now, King David is inviting his son, Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, to enjoy the bounty, to enjoy what it means to continue to sit at the king's table. And he is giving him his crown, his tunic as well, and sharing the bounty of that. The brotherly love that they had, he carried it out to the end. No one would have known about the pact of the head. No one would have known about the vow, but the character of David was such to invite his son to sit and to enjoy for the rest of his life what it meant to be in the kingdom. Do not be afraid. I intend to show you kindness. Sit at my table. Some of the things that I want us to get this morning out of that of David and Jonathan's friendship is that David and Jonathan had a deep brotherly love for one another, that they were for each other. They wanted each other to win and wanted each other to succeed. One of the things that, that uh, Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 and following, one of the things that he talks about is too many times we as humans are known for fighting one another. As a matter of fact, he uses language like a pack of dogs. When a pack of dogs get together, what do they do? They, tr- they fight for priority. They fight to see who's going to be the top dog. They nip and they fight until finally someone's the top dog and then everyone else bows down to them. And that that is so much of how we do friendships and we do relationships and we do work. It's a doggy dog world, right? And so we're fighting and bowing, literally biting and devouring one another so that we can be the top one. When in reality, what Christ tells us is that we are to be servants of one another. That we are to be so busy serving that we even eat last, that we forget the fact that there's even food on the table because the food that we want is not the food on the table, but we get satisfied by serving other people. That Jesus even tells us, I did not come to be served, but to serve. That to lay down our life is the greatest call for us. And that the only way that we can develop that heartbeat, that develop that character, is by being in Christ. That our heart and our minds and our eyes and our appetites are changed and transformed where it's not about me and what I can get, but I'm for other people. Jonathan and David could have focused on one another and Saul could have, could have ruined that friendship, but Jonathan, Saul, and David, the anointing of God, and said, no, we are brothers. We are brothers and we are tied to this enemy, the Philistines, but we're tied to the purpose of it's not about Jonathan becoming king. It's not about a position, but it's about the two of us and our friendship together. That all of us want to be known in such a way that someone knows you and they know your mess and they still love you. Jonathan and David knew each other's mess. Everyone else probably thought, man, I want to be Jonathan. It's cool to be in the king's house and the king's house was a mess. Quit wanting other people's stuff. Quit wanting other people's position. Quit wanting other people what you perceive to be whatever it is. Be content with the fact that God has created you and he did not make junk with you. He's put you in the place and the position and the talents and the skills and everything that you've got for a specific reason. And he did not mess up with you. Quit wanting other people's Warrior gear. Use the stuff that he's given you. It may seem like just a sling, but a sling in the right hands can do damage. Want and be content with what God has for you. And I pray for you that you will find friends. It is so difficult these days to find people that will love you and care for you. 
even when they know your stuff. That's the PG version. Because listen, I can say, let's begin to, adults, let's count out your stuff. Immediately. And the longer we live, it doesn't get shorter. And God says, I saw all of it. I see all of it. I know all of it. I've smelt it. And I still love you. Can you begin to do that for other people? As the scripture says, we are the image of God. And that part of that is that as we begin to know and to grow into who God is and how he's transforming us, as we care for other people, people see God in us. And that's what the world is craving. That's how we become the lighthouse. That's how we're the salt. We bring flavor. We are what we're called to be. We're living life upside down. There's something different about followers of Jesus and people crave. They're wanting a deeper relationship and you have it. And they want what you've got. And they're watching us and they're seeking out what you have in Christ. And one of the major things that they're wanting is they want friendships like some of you have. That you know that you have a brother or sister when the fight goes and the stuff hits the fan, that they're going to be at your back and say, I've got your back. I'm going to fight with you and for you and not turn around and stab you in the back because I'm not worried about position. I'm not worried about this. I'm worried about you and you alone. Let's pray together. Dearly Father, thank you that you know us and that you love us. Thank you that you, in Christ, provide friends of great depth that care for us and love us and know us and still stand back to back with us. That even though in our messiness together, by using the tools that you've given us, the uniqueness of who we are each, the battle can be won. Not in our own strength, but in yours, but that we fight together. Father, I pray for each one of us in this room that we find, if we do not have that, that we would find a friend in these coming days, in these coming weeks of someone that we can look at and say, you know my stuff. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for coming into my craziness and loving me in it and through it and not wanting something from me, but something for me. 